It's time for Truth Unfiltered with Pastor Chad Harvey. Every Christian believes in the rapture. If you believe in the Bible, you believe in the rapture. The question is the timing. That's where the debate is. That's Chad Harvey. And welcome to today's broadcast of Truth Unfiltered. We're glad you're here. Pastor Chad is the teaching pastor at Cross Assembly Church in Raleigh, leading you to a deeper understanding of the Bible by putting the scriptures in context, emphasizing how God's Word applies to our daily lives. We invite you to join us and allow the Holy Spirit to bring truth unfiltered to you. And now, here's Pastor Chad. We've been going through the book of, uh, of Revelation and now I've been excited. All right, now we get to go to the fun stuff. We're in Revelation chapter four. And I remember years ago, I was a senior in high school. I was taking this Bible class and they had an 80 something year old man come in. He's a scholar that studied prophecy. That was his focus is, is biblical prophecy. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, I've been studying prophecy for 60 years. He said, I don't know if I could have said this with this much assurity 60 years ago when I started studying prophecy because Israel wasn't a nation yet and there's some things I felt might have to come together. But now I can say, without a doubt, there's no prophecy left to be fulfilled. Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. That was years ago. If that was true back then, it's quadruply true right now. Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. And beloved, um, I want you to kind of see where we're going with this thing. If, if you, now look, things are happening at a, at a dizzying pace. Now, now listen to me. The vaccine is not the mark of the beast. The vaccine is not the mark of the beast. The vaccine is not, I'm going to say that because I'll be misunderstood. It is not the mark of the beast, okay? But 20 years ago, when we read Revelation 13 and saw that the day would come, where people couldn't go into grocery stores or buy or sell without a particular mark, it didn't make any sense to us. Doesn't seem so strange now, does it, church? Things are happening in the heavenly realms. And what we believe as a church is that Jesus Christ is going to come back to planet Earth before this Earth goes into seven years of tribulation. In fact, I want you to look at this diagram. I hope this makes sense. Look at this diagram. Old Testament, that's Moses, the prophets, law, that cross that's 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. Church, that's the church age. You're na- that's where you're at right now. We're in the church age. That's about a 2,000 year period. That's the church age. Then there's going to be seven years of tribulation. It's going to be horrible. You, you won't want to be on planet earth during those seven years of tribulation. It, it, there, there's never been anything like it. It'll also be a time of unprecedented evangelism. All of Israel will be saved. 144,000 Jews will be sealed out of Israel to go out with the gospel. Angels will proclaim the gospel. The two witnesses will proclaim the gospel. It'll be an unprecedented harvest, but it's going to be a horrible, horrible time. Then at the end of those seven years, Jesus comes back to planet earth, sets up his kingdom, will rule from Israel for a thousand years, and then we go into eternity, okay? Now, before that seven-year period, that catastrophic period occurs, there's something that we call the rapture of the church, where Jesus Christ comes and he takes all true believers, the true church, up to heaven to be with him. And it's going to be quick. The Bible calls it 
in the twinkling of an eye in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And the twinkling of an eye is not a blink. A blink is actually pretty slow compared to that. One Christian physicist said, no, the, the twinkling of an eye is the time that it takes light to pass through the retina. That's 10 to the negative 43 seconds. In other words, we're here and then we're just gone. And uh, people said, wait a second. All Christians are going to go from land to earth? Yeah. Christianity is 30% of the world's population. How can 30% of the world's population just disappear? Can I tell you something? True Christianity, the true church is not 30% of the world's population. Jesus himself said very few find the way that leads to eternal life. Very few people have truly surrendered the lives of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it could be hundreds of thousands. It could be millions. And, uh, And there's some criticisms of this. Look, every Christian believes in the rapture. If you believe in the Bible... You believe in the rapture. The question is the timing. That's where the debate is. And a lot of Christians believe that we'll be here on planet Earth and Jesus will take us up at the end of the seven years. We believe it's the beginning of the seven years. And there's some criticisms of this pre-tribulational rapture of the church. First criticism is this. Hey, it's just weird. That's my criticism. It's just a weird, strange doctrine. And it is kind of weird. The situation regarding the doctrine of the rapture is similar to the famous quote by Dr. Richard Feynman speaking of quantum physics. Dr. Feynman said, quote, it is often stated of all the theories proposed in this century, the silliest theory is quantum theory. Some say the only thing that quantum theory has going for it is that it, in fact, it is unquestionably correct. Of all the crazy doctrines we have out there, I think the rapture might be the craziest. The only thing it has going for it is it's correct. Second criticism is this. It's a recent doctrine. You know, uh, nobody preached the pre-tribulational rapture of the church into the 1820s and John Nelson Darby and all that. That's actually not true. We can see in church history, there were others who believed in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Ephraim the Syrian in 370 AD taught it. Hippolytus in the second century alluded to it. So it's not necessarily a new doctrine. Here's a third criticism. The word rapture is not even found in the Bible. And that's true. Rapture is not found in the Bible. Do you know what other word is not found in the Bible? Bible is not found in the Bible, okay? But the concept is there. Rapture is a Latin term. The New Testament is written in Greek, and so you would not have a Latin term in the Greek New Testament. The Greek word is harpazo, but it means the same thing, rapture. Here's another uh, criticism. Well, the, the concept is not even in the Old Testament. And that's true. The Old Testament has nothing to say about the rapture. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, it is a mystery. Mystery in Greek means, the Greek word is mysterion. It means something that was hidden in the past and now is revealed. This concept was hidden to the Old, Old Testament prophets, but it was revealed in the New Testament. Do you know the church? Old Testament did not have a concept of the church. That was a doctrine that was revealed in the New Testament as well. And so, Pastor, why do you believe this? Now, I, I, look, I know. Pastor, I come to church for some practical stuff. I've said this before. I want 10 keys to financial freedom and five keys to a sizzling marriage. I want something practical. And you're talking about end time stuff. Hey, what could be more practical than the fact that y'all don't need to worry and stress and be so anxious because Jesus is coming back and he's going to make everything all right. That's pretty practical to me, I think. And so, where are some areas of support for this pre-tribulational rapture of the church? Well, number one, jot this down. The symbolism 
of the Jewish betrothal process. You know, we just put a ring on it and said, we're going to get married in six months and let's dye the shoes and buy a dress. The Jews had a whole system of getting engaged and married. Uh, a scholar named Zola Levitt has gone into this. And if you look at the, the way that Jews were betrothed and married at about the time of Jesus Christ and put that up against the rapture of the church, it's very eerie. It's almost like this was a foreshadowing that God gave the Jewish people of the rapture of the church. I wish we had time to go into that, but we don't. Second is the second support is the doctrine of eminence, the, the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Hey, y'all believe Jesus Christ could come back at any moment? Do you believe Jesus Christ could come back at any moment? Okay, then congratulations, you are pre-tribulational rapturists. Because put the, the diagram back up. If, if you think that Jesus is coming at the end of the seven years, then you know exactly when Jesus is coming back. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44, therefore be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't even expect. You don't know when I'm coming back. But if I believe Jesus is coming back at the end of the tribulation, and I know that the seven-year tribulation begins with the signing of the peace treaty by the Antichrist in Jerusalem, and I am six years and 11 months into the tribulation, guess what? I know Jesus will come back next month. But Jesus said, no, you don't know when I'm coming back. The only way you cannot know when Jesus is coming back is if you believe that the rapture is going to come before the tribulation. And so it, the, the Jewish betrothal, the doctrine of eminence means Jesus Christ has to be come back before the seven years of tribulation. And then third reason I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is um, specific scriptures. But this is in the Bible. For example, Jesus says in John 14, one through three, disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now, some of y'all say, well, no, what he's talking about is when he comes back to planet Earth. Jesus just said, I'm taking you to where I am. When he comes back at the second coming, he's coming to where we are. Well, no, no, I believe Jesus is talking about when you die, I'm going to come and take you to where I am. Nowhere in the Bible does it say Jesus personally goes and gets saints, believers, when they die. It says in Luke, I think, 16, he sends angels to get you, but Jesus doesn't come personally and get you. So the only thing you're left with is the rapture. At the rapture, Jesus takes us to where he is, okay? Um, and then you have other passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Well, there's another scripture that supports the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, and it's Revelation 4. So let's, let's read this together. Revelation 4, now keep in mind, John is an old man, 90-something years old. He's on Alcatraz. He is on a, uh, on a rocky island in the Aegean Sea breaking rocks. This 90-year-old man has a vision of Jesus, and for the last three weeks we've been going through seven letters that Jesus gave to John to give to, to the churches. And now it says in verse 1, After these things... I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat 
on the throne. So John has been on this island and immediately he hears a voice saying, come up here and John is immediately in heaven. Listen, I told you that there's a number that the Hebrew people believe was the number of perfection. Y'all remember what that number was? Seven. Remember, you see that all throughout the book of Revelation. You see it in the Bible. Seven is the number of perfection. Did you know there are seven raptures in the Bible? That's interesting. Enoch was raptured. Elijah was raptured. Philip is preaching to an Ethiopian eunuch, and the Bible says he was harpazoed. He was literally raptured and taken somewhere else. Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, he has some kind of near-death experience, and he says, I was harpazoed. I was raptured into heaven. John in Revelation chapter 4 come up here and he is taken into heaven. Jesus, Revelation chapter 12 verse 5 says Jesus was harpazoed, raptured into heaven. And then the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, will be raptured into the heaven. Now here's what happens. You got to focus on this. So after Revelation 4 and 5, it's really one big unit. It's the throne room of heaven. Comes Revelation chapter 6. And Revelation chapter 6 begins to describe those seven years of terror horror on planet earth now up to this point the word church has been mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of revelation church 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 and then when revelation shifts and starts talking about the tribulation guess what word you don't hear anymore in the book of revelation church is no longer there well pastor that's an argument from silence it is but it's a pretty strong argument i think from silence and it's kind of interesting in verse one, look at this in verse one, John says, I heard a voice like a trumpet and then I was called up. What does that remind you of? First Thessalonians four, where there will be a trumpet and when that trumpet sounds, we will be called up into heaven to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse three. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. This man on the throne is described as a jasper stone and a sardius stone. What in the world does John mean by that? Now listen to me. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. In those 404 verses, there are over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. The reason we don't understand the book of Revelation is we don't understand our Old Testament. And we see in in, um, in Exodus chapter 28 that the high priest would wear a breastplate, or elaborate uniform, and have this beautiful breastplate. And on that breastplate were 12 stones symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. The first stone was Sardius, and the last stone was Jasper. And when John says, I see a man like Sardius and Jasper, the first and the last on the high priest's breastplate, he is saying that is the first and the last. And the first stone... It's kind of interesting as well. The first stone, the Sardius stone, symbolized the tribe of Reuben. The last stone, the Jasper stone, symbolized the tribe of Benjamin. Reuben means, look, the son. Benjamin in Hebrew means the strong son. You put that together and you have, behold, the strong son. John is looking at the throne and he says he is the first and the last. He is the strong son of the living God. Verse four, and around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Now stop, 
in the first three chapters, we've seen this. The lampstands symbolizes the church. Remember Jesus says, I can't remember what church it was. It was Laodicea, uh, Thyatira, one of them. He says, if you don't get your act together, I am removing your lampstand. In other words, I'm taking your church if you don't get your act together. Now you see these seven lampstands, but where are they now? They are in heaven. Implication, the church is raptured before the tribulation comes. And then there's these men, the 24 elders, to understand the significance of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church and why I believe the church will be raptured before the tribulation comes, we have to establish the identity of these 24 elders. Who are they? Well, number one, there's 24 of them. The only time 24 is used in a significant way in the Bible is in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles when David takes all the priests and he divides them into groups of 24 so there can be 24 hour a day, seven day a week worship. 24 means these are somehow priestly. Secondly, do you see this in verse four? These 24 elders sit on thrones. Do you know that thrones are promised to the church? Matthew 19, 28, we're gonna rule and reign one day with Jesus. Thrones are promised to the church. They have white garments, verse four. Do you know white garments are promised to the church? Revelation three eighteen. They have crowns, verse four. Crowns are promised to the church. 2 Timothy 4, 8. And in chapter 5, verse 10, these 24 elders, they sing this kind of a strange song. These 24 elders say, God, you have made us kings and priests. Now, why is that significant? It's because in the Old Testament, God was very careful about combining the office of king and priest. You, you don't combine those offices. Saul tried that. Remember that? He's king, first king of Israel, but when the prophet doesn't show up to, to sacrifice the way he thinks he ought to sacrifice, Saul takes on the role of priest and he kills the sacrifice and God says, Saul, I rebuke you because you've now combined the office of king and priest and you're not supposed to do that. In fact, there are only three people in the Bible that combine the kingly office and the priestly office. One is a man, have you heard of this name? Have you heard of this guy named Melchizedek? You ever heard of him? Melchizedek combined priest and king. We see that in Genesis and we see that in Hebrews. You know who the second person is that combines the office of priest and king? Jesus. He is our high priest and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And there's a third group that's allowed to combine the office of king and priest and that is the church of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter says, hey, you all are a royal, that's king, priesthood, that's priests. You and I are priests and kings. Those are the only three people. So who are these 24 elders that have crowns like have been promised to the church, robes like have been promised to the church, sitting on the thrones like have been promised to the church, and who are kings and priests like the church? I believe these 24 elders represent the church, the body of Christ. And you say, how can 24 elders represent millions and millions of people? Well, you have the same concept in the Old Testament. Jacob had 12 individual sons. These are individual men. And those 12 men represented 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes represent millions and millions of Jews. 12 people representing millions of people. Here you have 24 people representing collectively millions in the body of Christ. And here's the point. The tribulation is just about to begin. And if these elders represent the church, where are they before the tribulation begins? They're in heaven. 
implication, we are raptured before the tribulation. So pastor, why do you believe the church will be raptured before Jesus comes back? The whole Jewish betrothal thing, I, I might do a cafe 242 on that because it's really fascinating. That, number two, the doctrine of imminency. If you believe Jesus Christ can come back at any moment, you gotta be a pre-tribulational rapturist. Number three, the Bible says so. And then number four, I'm gonna give you a word here because I'm gonna teach you something. All right, our soteriology, I believe, prohibits you and I from being on planet earth when the tribulation comes. What do you mean, pastor, by soteriology? Soteriology, very simply, is the doctrine of salvation. If you really understand what it means to be saved, what it means to be born again, then I don't see how you can think that we're gonna go through the tribulation. Um, Listen to this. I've had people say to me, I'm not a pre-tribulation guy. You pre-tribulationists, y'all are just trying to have some escapism. You just want to get out of persecution. That's all it is. You read the stuff in Revelation, y'all a bunch of cowards. You just want to get out of persecution. Listen, there is a difference between persecution and tribulation. Persecution begins with a human and is directed toward another human. Y'all, we're going to be persecuted. Y'all do realize that, right? you try to live for Jesus in this world, you will be persecuted. You're not getting out of that. Persecution is from one person to another person. Tribulation or or wrath begins with God and is directed toward humans. In fact, have you ever asked yourself this question? How can God let all this mess go on? I say all this junk going on in the world and all this wickedness, how can God just let it keep going on? Here's what you understand about God. His wrath His anger, it's like there's a big dam that's holding it back. God wants so many people to get saved that he is holding back his wrath. He's holding back his anger. But the day is going to come when that dam is going to bust. And when that dam busts and comes out on planet Earth, that's what we call the tribulation. Now, the reason why I don't believe, now this is not a doctrine worth dividing over, okay? Don't, don't divide with other believers over this. But the reason why I don't believe we will be here during the tribulation is the tribulation is all about God's wrath, his condemnation being poured out on planet earth. And I don't know what your Bible says, but my Bible says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. First Thessalonians 5.9 says this, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Listen, these verses say you and I are safe from God's wrath, and yet the tribulation is about seven years of God's wrath being poured out on planet Earth. And so let me, look, I've shared this illustration before, really personally, because it has helped me. This really put things in perspective, okay? Here's what you have to understand about Christianity. In every other religion, the performance leads to the verdict, Tim Keller says. If I do good, do good, live a good life, live a good life. When I die, I get my verdict. You are a good guy. Um, I live my life. I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. And I die and I get my verdict. You are a bad guy. In Christianity, 
You get the verdict first and you live your life out of that. The moment you get saved, God says, no condemnation. You're adopted as my child. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want to give you the verdict at the beginning. And now you live a life of gratitude out of that. You see the difference between the two? And um, here's the illustration I like. Steve Brown was a, uh, is a popular Bible teacher. And he had a daughter in 12th grade that took an accelerated English class. And the first day of class, she listened to all the requirements. And she says, I can't do this. So she goes home to mom and dad and she says, I can't take that class. They said, why? You're very smart. She said, I looked at all that was required. I I can't do it. And uh, the dad said, well, let's go talk to the teacher. So they had a parent-teacher conference, the dad, the daughter, and the teacher. And the dad says to the teacher, look, my daughter wants to drop your class. She said, why? You're you're brilliant, honey. And, and, And the dad said, well, she thinks she can't do what's required. And that teacher looked at her. She says, is that true? The girl said, yeah, I'm just scared to death. I'm going to fail. I don't want to fail, but I'm going to fail if I take your class. And the teacher asked her this question. She said, here's my grade book right now. And your name is right here. If I take this pen, not a pencil, and I put an A beside your name for the final grade, if I give you an A before this course even begins and nothing can change that A, will you take this class? He said, my daughter's a lot of things, but she's not stupid. She says, absolutely, I'll take your class. And so she started taking the class, and the dad said, an amazing thing happened. She did better in that class now that the pressure was off than she ever would have done if she had to earn that A. And some of y'all still think you have to earn God's approval, earn his love, earn his acceptance. And God says, no, I've already put Jesus's A by your name. You already have it. Now live out that kind of life that I've given you. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, puts it better than I could ever put it. The Apostle Paul is asserting that if we are Christians, your sins and mine, past sins, present sins, and future sins, have already been dealt with once and forever. Did you realize that? Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Thanks for joining us for today's Truth Unfiltered broadcast. We invite you to join us again next time for more great teaching from Pastor Chad Harvey, teaching pastor at Cross Assembly Church of Raleigh. I believe gathering together is an integral part of the life of a Christian. We're meant to live in community with others. What drew me to Cross Assembly is the community, the fellowship. I was eager to get that family feel and to have that moment of coming into church and just knowing these are my people, these are the people of God. And one way that I felt that at Cross was through groups. Being able to come here and feeling like that group of people, they were my people, they were my family. Groups are important because it is a way to learn how to be the church and not just go to church. It's one of those things that definitely makes you feel a sense of belonging, understanding that you're not alone. 
One of the most impactful semesters we've had has been a semester where almost everyone in our group was going through big life changes. There was sickness, loss of job. As one person shared, we prayed. Then another person was encouraged and they shared and we prayed. Throughout that semester, we saw God move in amazing ways. We have this saying that friends become family. That's what we've experienced through gathering together. You're finding people who are serious about their faith, who want to grow deeper, who also are looking out for you like a church family supposed to look out for each other. My relationship with God has increased dramatically. Being connected to the group really allows people to challenge me. That general accountability for my prayer life and kind of checking that. My favorite aspect of groups is serving. Serving is really a chance to humble yourself. You're no longer focused inwardly. You're no longer focused on your life, your problems. You're focused on how can God use me to bless this other person. The more we can get together and align with the vision of building and sending out those Spirit-filled agents, the more our community will see the true love of Jesus. When you serve together with someone, it not only helps you to no longer be inward-focused, but it can also strengthen a bond between the friend that you're serving with because both of you are humbling yourselves in order to help someone else. It can create memories that you'll never forget. If you are not in a group, I strongly encourage you to be a part of the family. You don't want to miss these opportunities to grow together, to gather together, to fellowship, and to serve one another. If you would like more information about Pastor Chad or Cross Assembly, visit crossassembly.org. Again, that's crossassembly.org. You're always welcome to visit us at any of our locations for Sunday morning services. You'll find locations and service times on our website. To support this ministry, text CROSS to 45777. That's CROSS to 45777. Join us again next time for more teaching with Pastor Chad Harvey, teaching pastor of Cross Assembly Church in Raleigh, and more of God's truth unfiltered.